Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast. This is episode 5-4. This week, we are starting our study on Matthew in earnest. We are into chapter one. We're going to be studying the genealogy and why it is that four women appear in that genealogy and why the genealogy is gospel. We're also going to look at Joseph's encounter with the angel. If you've got comments or questions, feel free to write them in either at podcast.impactnations.com if you're listening later, or if you're watching live, type them into YouTube and we'll be sure to discuss them in about 50 minutes right here. Hi, everyone. Steve Stewart here again. We are uh, on part four of our uh, Matthew, Gospel of Matthew series. Um, I just want to remind us from what I shared a couple of weeks ago that that when we go into the Gospels, we're really entering holy ground. The Gospels, as I said, are, are like the pinnacle of, of Mount Sinai. And I encourage us always to enter into the Gospels with a, a sense of wonder, uh, a particular attentiveness, embracing the mystery. I know as I read a chapter of the Gospels every day, I really seek to align my heart with that way of thinking and uh, receptivity. So, Lord, we just invite your presence. We thank you for um, this journey you've got us on. And we ask for you to open the eyes of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. So now we start. We've laid a foundation for three weeks, and now we start uh, in chapter one. Chapter one and two are really uh, Matthew's prologue of his gospel. Uh, John's famous prologue, uh, John 1, 1 to 18, focuses right from the beginning on the divinity of Christ. Matthew's focuses on his humanity. Uh, you know, one of the things that really uh, grounds us in our own humanity is, is our life's continuity from generation to generation. And uh, it's a few years ago now, but I was in the East, and my family goes back in uh, Eastern Canada, back to at least 1800. And uh, one day, uh, a couple of my older relatives said, would you like to go to the church graveyard in a town where there's a number of your ancestors? And I did. And, uh, and it, was, it was profound. I wasn't ready for it to be so profound. So there is this deeper sense of our own identity when we see it in the context of, of history and our family history. So let's begin with uh, John, or rather Matthew, uh, 1 1, um, reading uh, the first, uh, I guess, the first six verses an account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Aram, and Aram, the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salman, and Salman, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Whew, feel like we need to take a deep breath. 
Um, it, it may seem strange for us, for Matthew to begin uh, his gospel with a genealogy, but it was very common in his day, um, especially in the Jewish culture. You know, the, the children uh, grew up being taught and knowing the genealogy, going back generations and then passing it on to their children. Um, we're in a season, aren't we, right now, where there's some well-known and and widely used uh you know, Ancestry.com, et cetera, where I think that in this time of life where we live much more isolated and, and with certain transients, there is a desire to go back to our genealogy. Um, now, over the years, I've grown in my appreciation of this. I, I could be honest, for years I would read it, but kind of just pass over it uh, too quickly. There is, uh, folks, there's treasure to be found Uh and uh, much of it, I'm sure I haven't unearthed yet, but I want to make this point. Through this genealogy, Matthew is preaching the gospel. And I, I hope I can, I can bring that to life for you. Um, why did parents teach their children the genealogy? Well, the genealogies were about purity of the line, and to the to the Jews, purity of the line was really important. We see it going all the way back uh, to the Pentateuch, to Numbers, etc. But also, it was important for their children to know because the present is rooted in the past, and after all, our lineage is part of who we are. Um, and the other reason he started, and this might be the most important, it's validation. Matthew links Jesus, David, and Abraham. This gene genealogy is much more uh, than a record of lineage. It's theology. Because in the coming of Jesus, all of God's promises uh, declared through the Old Testament are coming to their destined fulfillment. Uh, let's go back again quickly. Verse 1, an account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Uh, the word genealogy is the very same word for Genesis, by the way. Matthew is beginning his gospel by pointing out the beginning of all Scripture, paralleling it with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning was the word. Um which is John's prologue. And here we get, uh, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. I jumped to John, didn't I? Um, but I want you to notice the order that uh, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. Well, that's backwards. Why did he do that? Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to David to establish a king who will always be on the throne. And this goes beyond a natural lineage, obviously, if we know from our history that, that David's kingly lineage as king did not continue on always. But here's the promise, 2 Samuel 7, 16, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Jesus Christ, Son of David. You know, Matthew uses that term 10 times in his gospel. Israel is waiting for a king who would, who would come and would drive out the occupiers, the Romans. Uh, they were waiting for a king that would take them back to the golden age of, of David and, and Solomon. Secondly, he says, son of Abraham. 
Well, the, the great, great promise, really, you know, in many ways, it's like the first 11 chapters of Genesis are like the introduction, and then the story begins uh, Genesis 12, 1 to 3, and the promise is, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless your descendants, and through them, all the people groups. This is always the movement of God, by the way. He comes to a people, and then he moves through them, and he goes out from them. So Matthew is both recalling and pointing uh, in his own day that the gospel is about to go out to all peoples, to all nations. And as it does, it is creating new descendants of Abraham. Again, and we'll come at this so many times, we need to read the Gospels. We need to read Scripture in multi-layers. Multi-layers. It's too easy for us to not realize that what he's saying, I'm creating, God is creating through Christ true descendants of Abraham. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Isaac was the child of promise. <clears throat> Abraham and Sarah had to wait, and they had to stay faithful for years. But God did not forget his promise. Matthew's telling his readers, God did not forget his promise. He never wavered. You know, there's that, that famous incident in Genesis 22 where, where God tells him to take his son Isaac and sacrifice him. Um, to sacrifice his son. And uh, he says, And by your offspring all the nations of the earth shall gain blessing for themselves because you have obeyed my voice. You obeyed me, and it released blessing. There's a parallel here between Isaac and Jesus. Matthew is preparing the listener, uh, the reader, for the final words of this offspring of Abraham, which are the final words of Matthew's gospel, the Great Commission, go into all the world, to all people groups. Verse 3. So you're seeing every verse, there's, there's deeper and deeper things to draw out. Verse 3. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Aram. This is the first mention of a woman in the genealogy, and it was extremely unusual for that to happen, especially given the unorthodox nature of, of uh, how she gave birth. So I want to talk for a few minutes about the four women. This has been on my mind for a couple of weeks. For me, this is very much why I say the genealogy is the gospel. It preaches the gospel. So there's four women mentioned in the entire genealogy, but all four are, are very unexpected types. They're, they've got rather questionable lives. They're, they're, they're questionable racially, uh, morally, uh, socially. He's preaching the gospel here. He's preaching a gospel of inclusiveness, of forgiveness, of restoration. He's preaching a gospel that says there is intrinsic value in every single life. Now, I find it fascinating that we have these four women, but the four great matriarchs of Israel, which are Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah, are not 
mentioned, they are not included in this genealogy. You see, Matthew is giving us a new genealogy, a new genealogy of a grace-filled gospel of Jesus. One of the early church fathers, Chrysostom, wrote that Christ did not come to escape or to ignore or to hide our disgraces, but to carry them away. Because in this genealogy, he is declaring that he is not ashamed of anyone or anything that belongs to us. Can you hear the grace of God in that? So the first one we come across is Tamar. And too often, we, we think of Tamar as this immoral woman. But, but even Scripture says, her Judah says, she has been more righteous than I. And uh, Jesus came for those who know their sin. They know their need. He always confronts uh, religious assumptions, uh, any religion that is exclusive, that says you've got to meet this mark, you've got to be this good. Gospel is always inclusive. And, and you know, <clears throat> pardon me, although she couldn't have known it when she was so desperate um, that she pretended to be a prostitute so she could entice her father-in-law because her father-in-law had abandoned her and wouldn't give her what by the law was hers, which is if uh, if your husband dies, then then his brother becomes your husband, and he he wouldn't do it. And so she she goes out to the laneway and she disguises herself. She's in a different town as as a prostitute. So we often focus on oh, even even. God even, you know, forgives and loves prostitutes. Of course he does. The whole gospel will say that. But in this incident, this isn't really what it's about. She was abused. She was uh, mistreated. See, God is working in a way that surprises us through this genealogy. And in fact, it it can even offend us. The church fathers believed that Scripture was a unified whole, that, yes, God used individual people to to write the books of Scripture, but that God himself inspired and was behind every single word, and therefore that Christ was revealed throughout the Old Testament, if we will just look closely enough. And that is one of the points of this Matthew series. I want us together to learn how to look deeper. Remember, we talked about the literal meaning, the moral meaning, the spiritual or water-to-wine meaning. So they saw the fathers beyond the surface meaning to something that, that went deeper. It included seeing people in the Old Testament, seeing events as, as types that pointed to the gospel of Jesus. Uh, with this in mind, they saw that Tamar was uniquely recorded as being the mother of two sons in the genealogy. Did you see that? Nowhere else do we get more than, well, it just went from this generation to this generation. But Tamar is the mother of both Perez and Zerah. And here's what happened. 
we have this little story in in Genesis, and you go, gee, why is that there? When she gives birth, she gives birth to twins. And Zerah appeared first. His arm came out of the womb, and they tied a scarlet thread around, but then retracted. And Perez actually came out first. Now, I used to think, well, that's interesting. I wonder what that's about. But the father saw Christ in this. They saw the gospel in this. They saw this as a type for the new messianic age. Christ's birth and and the ministry and uh, uh and his ministry and the early church, all of it. Although the Jews were supposed to be the first fruits of the gospel, uh they withdrew and the Gentiles came forward. In fact, when Matthew was writing this, the Gentiles were pouring into the church, and and the Jews largely were not. So they withdrew, and and it was later that Zerah was was born. He came out, and and so what Matthew is really saying in the type here, yes, although the gospel was first for them, they did not accept it. The Gentiles did, but they eventually will. So why is this passage here? To encourage the listeners that God always had in mind to reach out to the Gentiles. Um, So we go on. Verse 5, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, second woman. Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, third woman, and Obed, the father of Jesse. Matthew is not trying to be historically accurate. Uh, this can be jarring for us because all our lives, being a, a, affected by the the uh, uh, the Enlightenment, where everything's based on facts, that that uh, you know, I'm reading right now the Wisdom of Solomon, and somebody asked me, "Well, does that mean Solomon wrote it?" I said, "No." And they said, "Well, then why did they use his name? Isn't that?" plagiarism? I said, no, it's in the type, it's in the style of Solomon. Well, likewise here, Matthew is is preaching the gospel, and he's not concerned if he omits generations or not. Um, And clearly that's what was happening. Um, He's turning instead our attention to his great theme that all of All of history culminates in the incarnation, in in the coming of Jesus Christ for all people. Rahab, remember her from from early in Joshua? She was the prostitute in Jericho who protected the Israelite spies. Uh, She could not possibly have been the mother of Boaz, who was probably 300 years later. So why did he write his genealogy this way? Take off your enlightenment cap. Put on the cap that says it's all written there for deeper meanings. Here we go. Rahab was a foreigner, so she shouldn't be trusted. She was a prostitute, so she could shouldn't be valued. But God says she was a rescuer. And the rescuer becomes the mother of Boaz, who himself became the rescuer or kinsman redeemer is the term, for Ruth. I encourage you, if you've not read the book of Ruth, four chapters just containing, again, the gospel. So from the early church days till now, Boaz was understood to be a type of Christ, a redeemer, a rescuer. Let's talk about Ruth. 
I've been thinking a lot about Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess. She came from Moab. According to Jewish law, Moabites were to be completely rejected and ignored for 10 generations. Deuteronomy 23.3, just so you know, I'm not making this up. No Amorite or Moabite shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of their descendants shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. But Ruth is not only included in the genealogy, she's highlighted, she's honored. Ruth came to where? To Bethlehem, from a despised nation. She came as as an impoverished and desperate woman, like a refugee. We have been doing a lot of talking and and researching, and, and some of our friends have been traveling right now to find out what we can do with the refugee situation at the southern border in the U.S. She came like an impoverished refugee. And uh, she came to Bethlehem, the house of bread. I love that. I always think of Jesus that I am the bread. But when at the end of the story, after she's been redeemed, the, the women of Bethlehem declared this over Ruth. Then all the people who were at the gate, along with the elders, said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you produce children in Ephrathah, which is where Bethlehem was, and bestow a name in Bethlehem. Hear that? May you bestow a name in Bethlehem. And through the children that the Lord will give you by this young woman, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Clearly, Matthew is shouting out the gospel and the unwavering, unstoppable purposes of God. In the next verse, and Jesse, the father of King David, and David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba? No, by the wife of Uriah. It's interesting that she is not named by Matthew. She's just called the wife of Uriah. Matthew is stressing that by marriage to Uriah, who was a Hittite, she is now a Hittite. And, you know, we usually see Bathsheba as as immoral. You know, what was she doing taking a bath on the roof? Well, that's where people took a bath on the roof. But to say this, we miss the point. She wasn't immoral. She was a victim. She was a victim of David. David held all the power in the relationship. He was the king of the nation, for crying out loud. He's saying the gospel is for the powerless. That's why I love the Magnificat. When when, uh, Mary began to to prophesy in Luke 1, 46 to, I think, 53, it's all about this, this shift from, from power to the powerless. There's this great shift. Now, here's what's interesting about these women. There's so much no-talk rules in our society, in some of our families, very much in many of our churches. We just don't talk about it. Matthew hides nothing in Jesus' family tree. In fact, he highlights these women, showing the all-surpassing grace of God. These women are not tolerated, they are celebrated. And that, too, shouts not only gospel to us, but shouts to the church, this is how we follow Jesus. 
And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph. And we'll go on a little bit. And Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of uh, Jeconiah, and on and on. A couple of things I want you to notice really quickly. I don't have time to go into it deeply, but just like he has no problem in order to make a point in having uh, uh, in having Rahab be the mother of Boaz, if you look in the Old Testament genealogy, he's the, he's the father of Asa, not Asaph. One was a, a king, not a very good one, and one was a, a worshiper of God. In fact, we've got some of Asaph's uh, psalms in, in our Bible. And then later, uh, Manasseh, the father of Amos. It was Amon, but he changed it to Amos, the prophet. So what he's just saying is that Jesus embraces the, the priestly, the worship, the prophetic, the kingly. He embraces the, the outcast, the weak, the lowly. Also, you'll see that Matthew drops at least three kings from his genealogy, and I think it's because of their direct direct relationship to Ahab and Jezebel. Um, what we see in this section is the steady decline of uh, David's succession. And uh, there's two exceptions. There's Hezekiah and Je Josiah, good kings of Josiah, but we see a steady decline, and this carries on through the genealogy by the time we get to verse 12, after the deportation. Remember, they went to Babylon for 70 years, and they were deported there, and they come back, and you've got a list of other people, uh, Zeconiah, uh, Zelothiel, uh, and Zerubbabel. The Babylonian exile and return to Jerusalem was an acceleration of their decline. Now there's not even kings of Israel. There's just governors. And very soon we'll know little or nothing about the descendants. And so the names that carry on, we don't even know who they are. It looks like the gospel, Matthew is saying through the genealogy, it looks like everything's lost. Um, it looks like God has abandoned his people and his purposes for them. But then, the very end of the genealogy, and Jacob, not the patriarch, Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. So we see this steady slide, and then there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And then in verse 17, this is just, I just didn't want to pass over it. There's been a lot of perplexity around this, but... Uh, he says, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14, and from David to the deportation to Babylon are 14, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Messiah are 14 generations. So 14 times 14 times 14, if you actually count carefully, one of them really is 13, but th there's different theories, and um, one is that, that there, in Hebrew, uh, Letters have a numeric value, and so the the numeric value of David is fourteen. Um, you know, but the, the Matthew's Greek audience wouldn't have known that. Another is seven is a perfect number in Scripture, and so fourteen is double perfection possible. 
Um, the third possibility, which I think might be the most likely, it was common in an oral society to just have memorization keys. You know, many of us memorize just with, with keys, the first letter of a word or something. So I think it was that. All right. That's the genealogy. And I've got to be honest with you. When I think of those four women, I, I, it stirs my heart. It stirs my heart that this he's shouting this gospel. It just restores and, 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 and protects and draws in. You know, today I looked at a video that one of our partners, uh, Trinity, sent us. Some of you may know that, that last week uh, a, a door of opportunity suddenly opened. Last Monday, uh, Trinity shared with us to get into the largest refugee camp in Uganda, 120. Thousand with a thousand or more coming in every day. And when he went in there, he needed permission and he got in. People were starving. They were literally eating grass and boiling leaves. And um, he said, I will come back with food. He just felt faith. And he called us and we felt faith. And we put it on that same afternoon last Monday and um, asked people, and we needed to raise $19,000 in three days. Well, people responded wonderfully, and in fact, that was going to feed 400 families for a month. 400 families, about 2,500 people. Well, people responded beautifully, and instead of hitting 19,000, we, we hit 30, 31,000. And so they were able to buy a lot of food. Now, what am I saying? This morning, he sent a video of... Uh, of going in on Sunday, on Easter, Easter weekend, with the food and with the gospel and with worship. And, and there was a miracle. Someone got up uh, from a pallet and began to dance for about 30 minutes. That there were healings, there were 55 salvations, and there were all these people who had been starving, who now had food. And it it reflected that, and it just had them talking about you know, the various refugees just talking briefly, you know, about the differences made and, and so forth. And I'll tell you, I see lots of videos and I'm so thankful for what the Lord lets us do, but I just teared up. I just teared up. And, uh, and I went to, to see Tim and say, wow, what a great video. And then all of a sudden I'm crying. For me, it's tied into this wonderful genealogy, which is the gospel the Tamars and the Rahabs and the Ruths and the Bathshebas, the rejected, the Lazarus at the, at the gate of the rich man, at the front door of the rich man, and, and the, the, the leper and the blind and the deaf. It, it, the gospel is incredible, folks. It is incredible. And it is especially, especially, especially for the outcast, for the weak, for the vulnerable, for the starving. And that's, I think, what touched me so deeply these last two weeks as I read through this genealogy many times. It is gospel. Well, let's go on now to the birth of Jesus, uh, which is... Chapter 1, 18 to 25. Now, the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. This is known as the Annunciation, 
we we get it a, a clearer picture of that moment uh, in Luke's account. Um, you know, it's interesting because really Luke centers more on Mary in the first two chapters, and Matthew focuses more on Joseph. I'll say more about that in a minute. But it takes us to Matthew's central theme, this Annunciation, that God who has been at work among his people since Abraham, even when they didn't see it, has now come among them in person. The word has become flesh, as John says in 114. And, you know, this section here, uh, chapter 1 and 2, is Matthew's most unique contribution to the gospel narrative. It's filled with things that are nowhere else in the New Testament. Five times, and we talked a little bit about the fulfillment theme a couple of weeks ago, but five times in this section, there are fulfillment texts. He will give a scripture, or he will give Annunciation and say, and this is to fulfill what was written in the Old Testament. This account is Trinitarian. I'm going to talk some more about the Trinity um, in a couple of weeks in Matthew because Matthew is strongly Trinitarian. This account is Trinitarian. The Father reveals himself through his Son. And this revealing, how is it brought about? By the work of the Holy Spirit, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So Matthew's giving us Joseph's story, and Luke gives us Mary's. You know, there's differences in the two genealogies, and, and without going into a bunch, let me just say this. Um, Matthew and Luke drew from two different sources. Uh, Luke drew from from people that he he gathered information. Uh, Matthew was uh, had been an eyewitness, not to that event, of course, but was a was a, a disciple of Jesus. Uh, Matthew follows Joseph's line in the genealogy. Luke follows Mary's. Um, in, in verse twenty, as we'll see, uh, the angel stresses, <clears throat> excuse me, Joseph's kingly line, Joseph, the son of David. Um, Matthew traces Joseph's legal descent because Jesus, Jesus was adopted, but it's not always the biological descent. More than this, Matthew is mounting a carefully constructed argument from Scripture that, one, to enable his readers to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of David, and two, to establish his origin in light of Old Testament prophecy. We're going to get even more of that a little later and, and next week. The Messiah would come from Bethlehem, not Galilee. In chapter 2, he carefully traces the movements of Joseph and Mary and Jesus, the Holy Family. He, he traces their movements from Bethlehem to Egypt, back to Judea, up to Galilee, ultimately to Nazareth. Each stage of the journey is directed by God supernaturally through dreams and angelic visitation. And every time it happens, Matthew gives us an Old Testament scripture, says this is to fulfill what was written. 
Matthew, I'll say it again, is composed this thing so carefully. It's not a random gathering of Old Testament texts to somehow fit into what is happening in his account. Matthew and the early church believe God's purposeful control of both the words and events of the Old Testament were brought to pass. Remember, we heard Brad Jerzak a couple of weeks ago. He said, we can only understand the Old Testament in light of Christ, the resurrected Christ. Only then could we understand the significance uh, and appreciate uh, what the Old Testament texts say. So verse 18 and 20. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The Apostles' Creed, I, I pray it multiple times a week. I believe in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth. Jesus Christ is only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. The Apostles' Creed is like the foundation of the Christian faith from the beginning of the church. It's the oldest of the creeds that we have. Uh, Jesus was born contrary to the laws of nature, right? Virgin birth, contrary to the laws of nature, because he was beyond nature. It's interesting, you know, through the Old Testament, we see God adopting as his own uh, Old Testament patriarchs and matriarchs. But now there's a shift because now God is, is being born from their ancestors. The, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, verse 1, is literally the genesis of Jesus Christ. And the role of the Holy Spirit, conceived by the Holy Spirit, uh, reflects Genesis. The, the Spirit, in Genesis, the first couple of verses, the Spirit of God was hovering, was moving over creation. Since the virgin birth was a work of the Holy Spirit, a, a divine supernatural work, if we, if we just think about that, Maybe we'll begin to see every rebirth, every conversion, every time, like the 55 people who turned and gave their lives joyously on the weekend in the camp. Maybe we'll see every conversion as a reflection of this supernatural virgin birth, the work of the Holy Spirit. The fathers, the fathers saw a lot of connection with this Joseph encounter and with the Old Testament, Joseph. Uh, remember, for well over a thousand years, nearly 1,500 years, nothing in the Gospels, not the people, names, even the words, was none of it is without spiritual gospel interpretation. Mary prefigured the church, the bride of Christ. Christ's passion was foreshadowed in the in, the life of Old Testament Joseph. He was denounced by his brothers just as Jesus was accused by false witnesses. He was thrown into a pit to die, but emerged alive, just like Jesus went into the grave, but emerged alive. Joseph was taken to Egypt. Christ and family fled to Egypt. 
In verse 19, her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose Mary to public disgrace, plans to dismiss her quietly. He's in a dilemma of, of conscience because, because um, Joseph and Mary were betrothed. What that means, it's stronger than our engagement. When you're betrothed, it's unbreakable. Uh, it, it's You can't break from that. You can't change your mind, and it lasts for a whole year. And you're legally joined together and committed. And then after a year, you live together. Um, so there's three interpretations of how, how Joseph responded to when he found out she was pregnant. Uh, he believed in the miraculous conception. What he heard, he believed, but he thought, I'm not worthy for this. This is too much for me. Or maybe it was more natural thinking. He did not want to expose Mary to public disgrace. Um, said quietly divorce her. The law allowed, by the way, for a betrothed couple uh, to quietly divorce before two witnesses. Or thirdly, because Joseph was a righteous man, his conscience would not let him marry an unfaithful woman. Therefore, a quiet divorce was his kindness. He was seeking to be just. But the angel is drawing Joseph into the radical mystery of, of the incarnation. Because he says to Joseph, she's going to bear a son. And you are the one who gets to name him. You name him Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. You know, all through the Old Testament, it is God who saves people from their sins. That's in the Psalms. That's everywhere. But now Matthew is saying Jesus will save them from their sins. What's he doing? He's saying Jesus is God. So just like John's prologue, this is Christology. This is Matthew beginning to unveil the mystery of Christ. In the Old Testament, God is the Savior. Now Jesus is the Savior. Therefore, Jesus is God. Matthew is setting the stage for where he's going. Uh, a progressive revelation of, of the incarnation. What manner of man is this? They said. And he says to the disciples in Matthew 16, who do you say I am? So he's setting us up and moving everything along. Down to verse 22 and 23, all this took place, here it is again, to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel. This is quoting Isaiah 7:14, and there has been so much discussion about it. Was this misused by Matthew, or is this absolutely accurate? Uh, he says, a virgin shall conceive. Some translations say a maiden. Um, the, it could be maiden, but the overwhelming majority of the time, the word is used both in secular Greek and biblical Greek to mean virgin. And then you should name him Emmanuel. <clears throat> Isaiah is pointing forward here to the Messiah. He's saying he's going to be a great light to the Gentiles. He repeats this theme many times. Emmanuel means God with us. This is God's greatest blessing is to be with us. 
Judah was feeling abandoned. Uh, we'll talk a little more about that uh, when we look at the baptism. But Judah was feeling abandoned, what, what they call the 300 or 400 silent years. But when Jesus comes, they're not abandoned, are they? God is with us. And he promises to stay with us to the end of the age. Matthew says it here, and then he finishes the very end of his gospel, Matthew 28. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. These are like bookends. Joseph never speaks. This is fascinating. Look through Matthew's gospel. Of course, the first two chapters. Joseph, this major, major character. We're getting the whole nativity through Joseph. And he never speaks a single word. He's considered righteous, not for what he says, but for his obedience. Isn't that interesting? For Matthew, obedience is always a major theme. We're going to develop that a lot. Um, Our righteousness is displayed and made real by obeying. When we get into the Sermon on the Mount, we're really going to see this. So there's chapter 1. And I felt in one sense like I was racing. But I encourage you, would you go slowly through that genealogy? And you'll see gospel in in the ways that I told you and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal other ways. Now, in just a moment, I'd like you to to stick around because in just a moment, we're going to have a discussion about this chapter, Tim and I, and uh, encourage you to write in with any of your comments or any questions. God bless you. Now what? The gospel is meant to be lived. We now invite you to be a part of the discussion as we talk about how to apply this teaching. YouTube viewers can use the comment section below. You can also email your questions and comments to podcast at impactnations.com. <laughs> the question that I was just asked during the transition was, now do you believe that the genealogy is gospel? I do. I You win. <laughs> what do you know? <laughs> That's one in a row. I will be honest. I was looking forward to this week because I thought, man, what is he going to do with this thing? Because that's just a lot of names. <laughs> um, but I'm really glad you did. I'm glad we took the time to go through that. Uh, I, To be honest, I couldn't take notes fast enough. So I'm going to have to go back and watch again to get some of these notes so that they're waiting for me. By the way, uh, that's one cool thing about having a digital Bible. A lot of people give me hard time because I use pretty much only digital no paper but the one nice thing is you can add a lot of notes in the margin of a digital bible and then they're waiting for you next time you come Ooh, in good to point. read that so it was was the apostle paul an apple or an android guy oh he was absolutely an apple guy okay I guarantee I just, it. okay actually is knowing, that an allusion back to genesis 3 <laughs> <laughs> knowing paul he was probably like a blackberry guy <laughs> um Hey, just before we go in, normally I'd throw an ad in here, but uh, I'm not going to do an ad this week. I I just want to remind people of something you said um, as you were teaching there about that video. Uh, you and I got talking earlier about I said, hey, that video is actually in the newsletter we sent out this week. And 
<laughs> you said, yeah, but does anybody read our newsletter? I said, well, yes, some do. But truth be told, there's plenty who don't. And so we we often are on the phone with, with our donors and stuff and say, oh, did you see all that stuff, amazing stuff that's been going on this week? And, uh, you know, the answer is, no, I didn't, I didn't know any of this stuff. This is incredible. You guys should tell us this stuff more often. And I say, <laughs> well, we do. <laughs> uh, Isaiah and I work real hard on putting together a newsletter about once every four to five weeks, uh, just with real quick updates. I mean, it's these are not long things. This is just uh, usually four sections with some photos, a link to a video, something like that. Anyway, just earlier this week, we did send out a newsletter that's got a link to that video. Mm. So have a look in your inbox. If you're not signed up for our newsletter, uh, if you head to impactnations.com, if I got a deal for you, you can scroll about halfway down our homepage and there is a section where you can sign up for a free ebook on healing that you wrote a couple years back. And along with that, you will then be signed up for our newsletter. So you get a free ebook and you get a bunch of newsletters that are going to come. And I promise you, it takes like two minutes tops to consume a newsletter, which sounds sad when I say that, because it takes a lot more work than that to put it together. But the idea is really quick highlights of just all that God's doing. Um, it, so it doesn't require a lot of buy-in from you, and but I promise you it's going to encourage you. You know, we, we've produced and we see an awful lot of uh, videos. Yes. Yeah. Um, if for no other reason... Go on yeah. and look at this video about the refugees yeah, and absolutely. bring a couple of Kleenex with you. Yeah, I was, bring a couple of friends too, because it's really going to bless them to see what God's doing around the world. So anyway, newsletter, check it out. Um, all right, genealogy, his gospel. My biggest takeaway from that was the the way you, you talked about the women and these specific women that Matthew included because they were on the fringe, on, they were outcasts, they were rejected or whatever. And Matthew's making a strong point from the very beginning of his gospel. This is what the gospel is all about. It's about calling people in from the outside and saying, you're welcome too. Um, I'm wondering, is that one of the reasons why the religious leaders were so angry with Jesus by the end of his ministry? Like we've got them you know, getting the mob together to finally shout crucify him. And that leads to the ultimate end. Now I know, I know that there are spiritual powers at work there that are stirring up that mob, but in the natural, is this one of the things that had the religious leaders so fired up because, well, you mentioned two things actually, because you also in that story about Tamar, which blew my mind about the, that weird story about the arm comes out, this guy, and yeah, 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 two great names, by the way, don't, I wouldn't name your twins that, but uh, if, if I, if I get a grandchild named Zara, I will love him anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Um, so you talked about that as a parallel for, you know, uh, Matthew saying, Hey, God always knew that actually the Gentiles were, would be the ones to really receive the kingdom first because the, the Jews were going to reject it. Um, those are two really highly inflammatory things for the religious leaders of the yes. time. Uh, is that one of the reasons they're so upset with Jesus by the end? Yes. And and, it, and it's growing. He challenges them. Uh, he counter challenges when they challenge him on Sabbath. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, they challenge him on the temple. He says, well, tear it down and I'll build it up in three days. I'm the temple. Yeah. That uh, when they say, what's he doing hanging around with sinners in Matthew 9? He yeah. says, well, that's who I came for. I didn't come for people who think they're righteous. And it built and built and built. And, you know, we're going to see that that uh, John uh, the Baptist, the forerunner, 
he really uh, laid the way for Jesus having such a great relationship with the religious folks when he said, you brood of vipers. Um, So there's this growing thing. And what we always must see, always, is that it's, it's religion and entitlement and the blindness and the hardness of heart that he attacks, not the people. Mm. You, you know, don't don't forget uh, uh, Joseph of uh, Arimathea. Don't forget Nicodemus. Mm-hmm. He had all the time in the world for him um, because Jesus was never dualistic, unlike us. There was never in, out, good, bad, right, wrong. Yeah. So that's what I got to say about that. All right. <laughs> um I, I, I'm aware of the time, so I, I want to be conscious of that and not go too long. I, you talked about Joseph at the end, and I'm wondering if there was one emotion of Joseph's that I feel like was missing from that description, which could be just fear or covering his own keister, like putting my mind, putting myself mm. in Joseph's mind. Uh, I, I wonder. Is it possible Matthew's giving him a break here? Like, was Joseph not also just thinking, like, oh boy, the the pe- people around town are going to be thinking some funny things about? Well, when I the gave tourists? him, when I gave the, very briefly at that point, because yeah. I know how much I'd covered today, but uh, three reasons, and one of them was that that this was just too much. Yeah. Whether it was he felt unworthy, or whether it was a little bit like. Zechariah, his cousin-in-law, mm-hmm. who just said, I, "I can't deal with this." Yeah, um, it could it could be that, but you know what is so predominant is his obedience. He mm-hmm. just kept trusting, and yeah. he didn't talk back, and he didn't tell other people. He just held it all in mm-hmm. and trusted God, and trusted that God had spoken to him authentically. And in a trustworthy manner, mm-hmm. um, through an angel, we're going to see dreams. There's four dreams in this chapter one, two section. Yeah, and and I think, as I said, uh, and I'm repeating myself a little bit, this ties back to a central theme that Matthew presents. The gospel presents following Jesus as uh, way more than well, if you just believe, right. He is saying true belief bears true fruit. Yeah. And, uh, you know, John Wimber, who was, you know, one of my mentors, I was very blessed with that. He used to put it in pretty simple way. I've shared this with you before. Mm-hmm. He said what it comes down to is them that saved act like it. <laughs> so you're saying obedience is fruit. Yeah. Not yeah. that you have to be obedient in order to produce fruit or in order to gain fruit, but that obedience is actually evidence of belief yeah it is it is and it leads to fruitfulness because i think obedience john talks about abiding he Mm -hmm. uses the word abide again and again and again and he says if you abide in me if you trust me yeah if you just stick with me like joseph did what happens you'll bear much fruit yeah all right i uh i would really again what i said i just i've been so stirred by the gospel as it's presented, mm-hmm. especially through those four women. And you know what? When I, as a young Christian, maybe the first 10 years, I just thought of, you know, well, 
Tamar was just this immoral woman. Bathsheba was this immoral woman. Uh, I didn't even think much about the fact that Ruth came from Moab. Well, big deal. She had to travel for a few days. Matthew is shouting the inclusiveness mm -hmm. of the gospel, but also the healing of the gospel. Yeah. The healing. All right. So, as always, I'd like to finish off with just a real practical thing for people to take away. Practically speaking, application, this this idea of the gospel being inclusive, bringing those in who have been rejected, uh, those who are on the outskirts. How can people apply that to their life this week? Okay. And we've touched on this in other ways before. By not saying that that's a great idea, but saying, I'm going to follow the inclusive Jesus. Mm. I am going to this week. I'm going to pray, Holy Spirit, how do I do it? And I'm going to reach beyond my boundaries, yeah. beyond my preferences, mm -hmm. beyond my fears. You yeah. know, as you said, maybe Joseph was afraid. Um, I'm And I'm going to follow the one who always includes. And I'm not just going to think, what a great idea. Yeah. There you have it, folks. Uh, let's move beyond what a great idea. Thanks so much. Uh, next week, I'm guessing we're into chapter two. Just a hunch. Chapter two, you <laughs> cannot be fooled, can you? I am a mathematician. What can I say? Um, hey, uh, we hope you can join us every Thursday at 3 p.m. on YouTube Live. That's youtube.com slash impactnations. Uh, if you hit the subscribe button, then a little bell pops up. You hit that bell, you'll get notified every week so you won't miss us. Uh, if you're listening later on your favorite device, whether it be Apple, Android, or BlackBerry, uh, you can <laughs> uh, you can subscribe. If you go to impactnations.com slash podcast, you can subscribe to the audio podcast, and that'll get downloaded automatically to your device every week so you never miss an episode. Thanks so much for joining us. God bless you guys. Have a yeah, great week. It was great to be with you.